turn with me, please, to the book of Luke, chapter 17. In a few moments together, I'd like to look at something that, though it may be distasteful uh, to look at, I think by way of application, we'll see God's word and how relevant God's word is to our hearts, souls, and minds by way of application. First of all, just to make a statement, the more I study the word of God, the more I see the historical and geographical context of, uh, of what's written, uh, making application uh, to, the, to the truth of the word of God. That is, God has placed in, within the scriptures, geographical and historical context so that you and I, as we study the word of God and we ask who said it, to whom was it said, what are the circumstances in which it was said, we see how wonderfully they make the passage alive to us and, and give us a greater uh, truth of that simple context. So what I want to look at is God included this historical and geographical context for the application of the word of God. And I hope you'll see this from Luke chapter 17. Now we read this in our responsive reading, but we want to uh, start right in verse 11 if we could. So please bear with me as we look at like a cliff note version of, of the context and the setting here. Uh, first of all, during his three and a half year ministry, three plus a year ministry, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ spent most of his time in the north, northern part of the land of Israel, in what we know to be the Sea of Galilee up in that northern area. It's really the Sea of Chinesareth, but we call it the Galilee area. That's the fertile crescent of the land of Israel. That's where most of their grown, crops are grown, their fruits and vegetables are grown. Uh, so fertile is that area and so industrious is the land of Israel Many, many, many of their fruits and vegetables are sent to Europe as a byproduct. At any rate, right in that northern part by the Sea of Galilee, remember that was the only fresh water supply for the nation of Israel, really, that northern part, the, the Sea of Galilee itself, 15 miles wide at its widest place. It's, uh, it's eight, uh, I'm sorry, eight miles wide at its widest place, 15 miles long, and in many areas of that sea, it's 100 feet deep. Freshwater source given by the Jordan River that comes down from the north and feeds that magnificent place, a fertile place that God used mightily. The Lord particularly spent a lot of time up in the north as he, as in his ministry, right around the northwestern section of that Sea of Galilee, and one particular place was Capernaum or Capernaum. That was the hometown of uh, Peter. Uh, it was right on the seaport. It was a seaport. Peter, of course, was a fisherman. And our Lord Jesus spent a great deal of time there. There was and still is the ruins of a, a synagogue there where you'll find in the Gospels many of the events of the Gospels uh, that were played up there where uh, the synagogue was involved in a lot of it. Ma just magnificent, magnificent. So that was where the populace was in that area, much like today, east coast and west coast of the populace of the United States. So northern um, Galilee was the populace of, of the people up there. They were spread around, but there particularly were they bunched up. One specific area that he dealt with, as I mentioned, was, uh, was uh, Capernaum. Now, 
at least three times a year or more, he traveled down south to Jerusalem. It's a 70-mile walk. Except most of us don't walk a mile a day, never mind 70 miles. But our Lord Jesus would walk 70 miles south to Jerusalem. He would go south and a little bit west. As he traveled, he was required by Old Testament law to come, and he ministered. And as he came to Jerusalem, he spent most of his time uh, in the city of Jerusalem uh, proper, but he made his headquarters in a little town we'd call Bethany. That was on the Mount of Olives, on the uh, uh, eastern side of the Mount of Olives. It's about two miles from Jerusalem. So he had two headquarters there. Now, why do I say all that? Because as he traveled between these two headquarters, north and south, south and north, as he did this, he had to go through an area that was rabbinically forbidden. Rabbinically forbidden. Now, that would be important, so keep that in mind. It was rabbinically forbidden, and no orthodox, self-righteous Jew would go through this area, and that was called the uh, area of Samaria, the area of Samaria. And this becomes very important to our text now, so just kind of keep this all in mind. Now, you could not escape going through the area of Samaria because it engulfed the entire section across the middle of Israel, a little bit south uh, near Jerusalem. But, and that was the area that the ten tribes were. You remember under Jeroboam? They went up there and they set up false idols. That's the area that ten tribes were in. The reason the Jews would not go through this area is because some uh, 700 years prior, the king of Assyria, after capturing the ten tribes up there, he brought in Gentiles, and he mingled Gentiles in there. And so the Jews and the Gentiles cohabitated, and when they did that, the Jews gave themselves over to the pagan Gentiles. And so they became pagan in their attitudes, their actions, spiritually in every other way. They were, they were just a pagan people. So the Samaritans were looked on as vile people. Any rabbi, any self-righteous Jew would consider it sinful to put their feet on that uh, soil called Samaria. So often what they would do is they would travel from the north, north to the south they would actually go over to the far eastern side, cross the Jordan River, go down the Decapolis area uh, to, the, to the eastern side of the Jordan River, and then cross back over after they uh, skirted the, uh, the area of Samaria and then go into Jerusalem. They went way out of their way. They hated those people. They considered those people to be vile people. These were the self-righteous rabbinic Jews, mainly among them the Pharisees and Sadducees, but they inflicted that on uh, the people itself. He keep your hand here. We're coming back, but head with me to John chapter 8 for a minute. They considered being called the Samaritan a curse word. We're in John chapter 8. You'll recall in this whole section of uh, John chapter 8, our Lord Jesus Christ has a confrontation with these Pharisees and Sadducees and that they are declaring that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, was an illegitimate Jew. That is, he was born of, uh, he was born of fornication. You can see that in John chapter 8. 
just a horrible, horrible accusation in verse 41. Now skip down to verse 44. The Lord Jesus tells them the reason they reject him, the reason they hate him is this. You are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks a lie, for he speaks of his own. He is a liar and the father, uh, and the father of it, verse 45. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. So enraged are these rabbinics, so enraged are these Pharisees and Sadducees. Notice what they say to the Lord Jesus. You almost have to laugh. Look at verse 48. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that you're a Samaritan? They're cursing his name. You're a Samaritan. Not only that, you're a Samaritan with a demon in him. Ha! Good for you. you know, they, so they just cursed out the Lord Jesus. They hated the Samaritan so much they used the Samaritan word as a curse word. And then they included with the Lord Jesus, you're a Samaritan and you have a demon in you. This was constant. This was constant. As sad as it was, that was the result of the heart of these men. Now, it's important to realize, it's very important to realize for us, that our Lord Jesus Christ never broke Mosaic law. He never, ever broke Mosaic law. Now, Mosaic law was the law given through the Old Testament prophets, beginning with Moses, and that was part of the revealed word of God. So Mosaic law was sacred. It was God's word. And under Old Testament, any Jew had to keep the law or it was sin to them. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ was a sinless son of God. He never broke Mosaic law. But he did break rabbinic law. Rabbinic law was added to the word of God. It was not the word of God. It was religion. And you know, of course, today, many add religion to the word of God. They add their own thinking, they add their own processes, they add their own deeds and, and all of this. I happen to belong to a religion that said they followed the word of God and said that I could not eat meat on Fridays. Before I became a Christian, they said it's wrong, it's called sinful to eat meat on Fridays. You do not find that in the word of God. You do not find that anywhere in the word of God, but that's what they said, why they added to God's word. So the rabbis, rabbinic law, added to the word of God. The Lord Jesus said a couple of things about this, if we could. He said, uh, beware, in Matthew 23, uh, they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. In other words, these people lay laws on you and they don't even keep their own laws religious laws. When the Lord Jesus was asked why his uh, disciples uh, transgressed the tradition of the fathers, the Lord Jesus said this. He said, um, why do you transgress the commandments of God by your own tradition? So rabbinic law said, don't go into the land of Samaria. And what do we have our Lord Jesus Christ right in the heart of? right in the heart of it. You'll remember, of course, turn with me to Luke, I'm sorry, John chapter 4 for a moment. John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, 
Just one verse, I'll break into the context, but you can see this, please, picking it up in verse 2. Uh, verse, I'm sorry, skip right down to verse 3. He left Judea, that's the south. He's headed north again to Galilee. So he leaves the area of Judea, Jerusalem. He's headed north again, and he must, needs, go through Samaria. Did he need to go through Samaria? No. He could have done like every rabbinic Jew did. They crossed the river, went up, skipped Samaria, and went back up to the north. Why did he need to go to Samaria? Well, any of you that know the scriptures know that there were unsaved, unregenerated people there who had to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gloriously gave his salvation plan to first the woman at the well, and then the countless thousands who came, and only his, God's history reveals how many people actually came to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they were not, they were not a dastardly people. They were a people that needed Christ as Savior. And so he traveled to those people. So when the Lord Jesus went to Samaria, he did not break Mosaic law. He broke the rules of men, and they hated him the more for it. And I think, folks, you'll find that true as well. For, for you and I who know the Lord Jesus Christ today, the more we believe and do God's word, the more we will be disliked for doing it. It's a sad state of affairs, but that's the truth of today. So let's not get into politics. Let's get back. Head with me to Luke chapter 17. We have our Lord Jesus Christ during one of his north and south uh, transitions. He comes again into the land of Samaria. Right in the midst of this rabbinically cursed region is a leper colony. Now bear with me for a moment, please, because this is an important part of our text as well. Why was there a leper colony there? My suspicion is this, that that's where Jews from the north and from the south sent their lepers. I believe they sent them to Samaria anyway. We've got to deal with these people, so let's get rid of these people. Now, when we begin to look at this leper colony, head with me to uh, Luke chapter 17 and verse 11. And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, who stood afar off. This will be important to our text. But these lepers stood afar off. Leprosy. If I can just discuss it for a moment, I won't take a great deal of time with it. It's difficult, but it's part of God's word. God talks about it in his word, so I'd like us just to know a little bit of the surface of this, if we can. Leprosy has many, many forms. I did not know all of this until I did some research on it. I knew something about it, but not like I didn't want to know anyway <laughs> as I looked at it. Uh, it's likened, likened to uh, advanced skin cancer, but it has many, many variable forms to it. So complicated is this disease, so complicated uh, that it required specialists to determine its condition. Um, don't go there now, but in Luke and I'm sorry, Leviticus is 13 and 14 is where you'll see this disease. It took 
the Levitical priesthood to become experts to determine whether this form of leprosy was survivable or terminal. It was a hideous, a heinous disease. Not, of course, unlike what we are facing with cancer today, but a, a horrible, horrible disease. Uh, leprosy, or what we know to be Hansen's disease, is recorded uh, in history uh, some 600 years BC. Back into Egypt and into India as well, it's recorded, uh, this disease is recorded, uh, historically speaking. Uh, modern research, today's modern research, uh, indicates that the bacterium from this advanced disease is so particularly spreadable uh, by touch, uh, uh, by sputum in the air, coughing and that type of thing. It's a horribly infectious, infectious disease. It causes horrible, horrible disfigurement. Um, it, it, appendages begin to fall off. Ears, eyes, nose, arms begin to fall off. Uh, it, it eventually leads to total infection and then, of course, death by that. Last week, Pastor Rob was talking about pancakes and buttermilk and stuff. <laughs> Bet you can't wait for him to come back. I'm talking about leprosy. Anyway, added to this horrible disease, added to this horrible disease was uh, the need for social and family separation. You had to get away from your family. You were banished by the state of Israel, uh, but all, not only that, by the contagious condition of it. You didn't want to spread that to your family. So you would often move into leper colonies. Within those leper colonies, it just was up to the goodwill of people to throw food into you. That's all there was to it. You were banished away from everyone else and made to be together. On top of that, you could not be near any person that was not infected. As a matter of fact, when you, when, if you were seen by them, keep your hand here. And with me to Leviticus, uh, please, the book of Leviticus chapter 13. If you were seen by anyone, you had to totally get away from them. And you had to cry out that you were a leper. We're in Leviticus chapter 13. Look with me, please, at, uh, well, let's back up to verse uh, 40. Verse 40 of Leviticus chapter 13. This is talking about a person who... Uh, who, uh, I don't know if it's a result of disease, but all the hair seems to fall off the head. They were um, follically challenged. Uh, I got them back. I wanted to do that. Okay, uh, let's go to uh, verse 40. And the man whose hair was fallen off his head, he is bald, yet he is clean. And he that has hair fallen from part of his head toward his face, he, uh, he is forehead bald, yet he is clean. But notice in verse 42, and if there be a bald head or a bald forehead and a white reddish sore, it is leprosy sprung up from his bald head or his bald forehead. Then the priest shall look upon it, and behold, if the swelling of the sore be white reddish on his bald head or his bald forehead, as the leprosy appeareth in the skin of the flesh, he is a leprous man, he is unclean. 
and the priest shall pronounce him utterly unclean. His plague is in his head. And the leper whom the plague is, his clothes shall be torn, and his head bare, and he shall put on a covering upon his upper lip, and shall cry, unclean, unclean. And all the days therein the plague shall be upon him, he shall be defiled, he is unclean, and he shall dwell alone outside the camp, shall be his habitation. So once it was determined that this person was leper, they had to stand, and so we have our ten men of Luke chapter 17, afar off, crying to the Lord Jesus. They could not come near him under law. They had to stay way out there, and they had to cry out, we're unclean, we're unclean. Now head back with me, please, to Luke again. Now, some leprosy in the scriptures was a result of God's direct judgment upon people. This is most interesting. I won't have you turn to these cases, but I'm sure you'll recognize it. For example, in 2 Kings, Elisha, Elisha's servant Gehazi was given leprosy. Remember? Because he took goods from Naaman, who was a healed leper. Uh, you'll remember Miriam, Moses' sister, was struck with leprosy because of her sin. And then in 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah, there were others as well, but they were struck with leprosy. Uh, God used that disease of leprosy upon them as a result of their sinfulness. For the most part, though, and I'll just say this in passing, uh, just so we get things in perspective, think through this with me, if you would, please. Leprosy uh, is a result of a sinful, cursed world. Prior to the fall of Adam and Eve, there was no disease. Disease came upon the curse of the whole world. Prior to Adam and Eve, and try to think through this with me, there were no earthquakes or, 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 or tornadoes. There were no hurricanes, droughts, floods, storms. These were all the result of God cursing the world with the great noatic flood. And so disease entered the world. Death and disease entered the world because of a cursed world. As a result, the world is groaning, groaning, waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us. And today we cannot say, nor should we ever say, that God brought a hurricane on these people because they're sinful. You cannot say that. It's sinful to say that. You don't know that. Only when it's revealed in the scriptures can we know it. I remember back, I was not here at the time, but back in 2010, Haiti was struck with a devastating earthquake, if you remember, in 2010, right near the capital city of Port-au-Prince. And I remember uh, so vividly uh, an older Christian man who should have known better said to me, well, you know why they got an earthquake? I said, I really don't. <laughs> the fall. Went, no, no, he said, because they were what they do down there. That's, that's foolish talk. It's foolish talk. You can't say that. From what I'm observing, if that's true, then our own Washington, D.C. deserves an 8.0 earthquake. <laughs> Wouldn't you say, when you look around us and hear what's going on and see what's going on? Now, you deserve an earthquake at your house, right? If that's true. So to say that God's bringing earthquakes today, 
He, he may well be. I don't know, but you can't say that, neither can I. But we know that these natural disasters, leprosy, disease, cancers, uh, you name it. Why are my joints falling apart? Why? Well, because God says that under the curse, all will die. And that's us. That's you and I. And as these storms come, as the, as the storms go, as the diseases come and the diseases go, God may use them for his honor and his glory. But realize this, that only God is sovereign over all these things. And so as we go through this, I want you to see what happened. We're back in Luke chapter 17 now. In verse 13. Remember, these men were standing afar off. And as they're standing afar off, they lift up their voices and they begin to scream out. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So what they're crying out, and, and when, they call, when the, this word Jesus, Master, they're calling him, Commander, Lord over all. Somehow, some way, they must have got word that this person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was a great healer. But no matter where the Lord Jesus went, that was the case. He healed everybody everywhere he went. Why? Because God said when Messiah would come, that he would banish disease from the earth. And what they were doing is pointing to his second coming as him as the sovereign Messiah, showing that this one, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. And so they heard this, and they're crying out, Master, Master, save us. This is, is so interesting. Look, if you would, please, at verse um, 14. And when he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves unto the priests, and it shall come to pass, as the, and it came to pass, as they went, they were cleansed. Try to think about this. I try to think about this. It, it must have been utter euphoria. The reason they had to put a, um, um, a, a type of veil on their faces because their lips would fall off. They would have open, exposed nasal cavities because of this horror of leprosy. Digits all fell off. They actually broke them off themselves because the healing was gone. Horrible, horrible situation. And the Lord Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. Now, why would he say that? Because that was under Levitical law. Remember, we're still Old Testament. Jesus came under the law to redeem them under the law. We're still in an Old Testament scenario. And a leper had to go to the priest for an examination to make sure they were clean. You'll find that, again, in Leviticus 13 and 14. As they turn to head for one of the priests, they begin to look at each other. Skin. Digits. Appendages. All of them break back, pure as a baby. Can you imagine the euphoria of these guys? All ten of them, excited, thankful. The saddest part about this, though, is, however, they seemed more thankful for the temporal than they did the eternal. They were thankful they were healed, of course. They were very thankful that their skin was back and that they weren't subject to this horrible, tormenting death. And yet, 
And yet, they were not thankful to the God who did it. Look with me to Luke chapter 17, if you would, please. In verse, and again, verse 14. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass, as they went, they were healed. And one of them. This is so interesting. And this brings us back to the case of um, the, the Bennett saying that this Samaritan is this vile area. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. And you can picture this guy running. He ran and fell down on his face at, his, at the feet of the Lord Jesus, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Interesting. Not only was a Samaritan, apparently he was a full-blooded Samaritan. That is, he did not have any Jew in him. Now, why do I say that? Look, if you would, please, in verse 18. The Lord Jesus said in 17, and he answered, Were there not ten? But where are the nine? There are, there not, uh, there are not found that return to give glory to God except this stranger, this stranger from the covenants of Israel. He's the only one that came back. And what's so interesting about this, and I want to make application in the few minutes we have together, please, if we could. Verse 19, and he said unto him, the Lord Jesus said unto this stranger, this Samaritan, cursed by the rabbinics, not only cursed for being a Samaritan, but cursed for being a leper. So this guy has everything in the world against him. Cursed for being a leper, cursed for being a Samaritan <coughs> by the rabbinics. Verse 19, and Jesus said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee well. That's my reading in the King James Bible. The real term here is an interesting term. Thy faith hath made thee whole, complete. So not only was he physically well, but he was spiritually well. This man was gloriously saved. When he returned and gave thanks to God, he recognized who the Lord Jesus was, and he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah, and he was gloriously made whole. Now what's interesting is, weren't there ten? Well, the answer is yes. Weren't there ten that cried out, Rabbi, Master? Oh yeah, there were, there were, there were ten. What did they cry out? Save us, we're in a hopeless situation. We're without hope. And the Lord Jesus gave them that hope. Now. On several occasions, the Lord Jesus healed people long distance. I won't take time to, to show that uh, to you, but you can find that uh, quite easily uh, in the scriptures where he healed, for example, he, he healed a, a, the, the uh, centurion's servant long distance, long distance. Uh, in, back in the book of Luke in chapter 5, the Lord, a leper came running up to Jesus. He must have just broke through the crowd and ran to him. And Jesus touched him. And he said, Master, if, if you will, I can be made healed. And the Lord Jesus said, I will. And he touched the guy. These interesting cases. But in this particular case, these people ran to the Lord Jesus. And after they were healed, we do not read about them again. Now think about this for a moment, very quickly. And I want to make an application here. The world looks to God, do they not, for religion. 
most of these people completely operate outside the, the, the realm of God's word. I've seen this. I don't know. I don't want to point to any individual, but we hear our politicians, God bless you and God bless the United States of America. What God are they talking about? I have no idea. They certainly don't act like they should if they believe in my God, but that's, this is what the world uses God as, as a crutch, if you would. They use him as uh, religion. Uh, and what are they looking for? Well, they're looking to get something psychologically, perhaps, out of it, uh, uh, financially, and m most certainly physically. They're looking for something that will make them better, give them more, help them in their, their need. And, and they sort of use... God and God's word as a, I have to laugh about this carefully, as some kind of comfort dog. They need this comfort dog and so they'll call on God. But they put the comfort dog away when they have what they need. They, think they put him away. And so God's benevolence grants unto them. He grants unto them his grace, his kindness, his mercy. But why? Why does God allow people to be healed? Why does God work in the lives of unregenerate people? It's always and only to bring them unto him. That's the purpose. He doesn't heal them. Why? Because he knows if he, if, I mean, he doesn't heal them for the purpose of making them better. He heals them for the purpose of coming to him. Why? He knows these people are going to die. Listen, all ten of these leopards are dead. They die. And you and I, being in Adam, die. But God wants us to be not only physically well, if you would, uh, to a certain degree, but also, but more importantly, rather, spiritually well, a whole, complete in him. He's looking not at our body, because that's going to die and decay, but he's looking unto everlasting life. And so God's benevolence, uh, he ca causes the, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And when their needs, unregenerate people, when their needs are not met, they accuse God, they scoff at him, they curse with his name, they reject his word, and they reject people who believe his word. That's the world that the Lord Jesus was in, and that's the world we live in today, the very same world. But more importantly, and I want to stop with this together, is the world, the world and fellow Christians are not as thankful as we should be. That includes us. For example, in, in Romans 1.21, we read this, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful. But they became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. And they know the downward spiral of it. But what about us? Am I thankful? Am I thankful for my eternal life in Christ? Or am I always, always looking for something else? Am I thankful or am I looking for something else? Head with me, please, to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As a New Testament Christian, am I thankful for salvation? Salvation, I mean, everlasting life. That's the purpose of God's word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed. And so God wants to grant us unto us his eternal life. How does that happen? We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Notice what Paul's saying to the Thessalonian church. For this cause also we thank God without ceasing. <clears throat> Paul is so thankful to God. Why? Because God has given his word to these individuals at Thessalonica and they believe. Look, if you would. For this cause thank we also, for this cause thank we also, uh, and, uh, and we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as it were the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually works in those who believe. When they believed the word of God, God's word worked in their soul and their heart. God's word always works, but it is applicable to those who believe. God's word applies. If you believe on me, the Lord Jesus Christ said, you'll be taken out of darkness into light. You'll have the power of death will no longer hang on you. You'll have everlasting life in Christ. So we recognize that God's word works, and, and Paul told these uh, these. Christians, if we're so thankful, we're so thankful that you believed. Are you thankful that you have salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you looking around? Or are you looking around? Head with me, please, to Romans chapter 6 for a moment. Romans chapter 6. And look at verse 17. As a Christian, are you thankful? Am I thankful? I need to ask myself all the time, are you thankful? Now, Obviously, obviously, when we're, there's times of turmoil in our life, we, we're, we're not very thankful. For, for eight weeks, I've been one of the worst patients this world can describe. I just had major surgery, and I'm disgusted because I can't get out of bed. Well, you, you're not supposed to necessarily. I'm disgusted because the medicine that they give me tastes terrible. Uh, you know, I, when you're in, when you allow yourself to go down into this pit of thinking. You're no good to anyone, including yourself. When you allow depression, when you allow the circumstances of the world, when you allow this stuff to press down on you, you're not a thankful person. You're never going to be. It's not until you break through that darkness and have the glorious light of God that you start saying, wait a minute, all this stuff is temporal. All, it's all temporal. And we look on the eternal. Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 17 for a moment, please. But God be thanked. Who is it? It's God that needs to be thanked. No, I'm really something. No, you're not. You think you are, but you're not really that great a shake, you know. God didn't choose you because you were the best person in the world. Far from it. God didn't go, go to the Samaritans because they were the greatest people going. No, no, no. God went there because they were lost souls. But God be thanked that whereas you were the servants of sin, you have op uh, obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which delivered unto you. God be thanked. It's God's work. It's God who does the work. Head with me again, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 
2 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I thankful? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, let's look at another passage just very quickly, please. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 15. In the King James Bible, this verse says this. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. It's so interesting because the gift isn't mentioned, but we know who it is and what it is. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, it, the term unspeakable means you shouldn't talk about it. That's not what it means. But it's indescribable. You cannot adequately express what the Lord Jesus Christ did in our place on Calvary's cross for our sin. His unspeakable gift. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And salvation, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It all comes from him. But who do we thank? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And so surgeons can put you back together. Surgeons can cut away or add to your body and give you some reasonable time. But one day you're going to stand before Christ, who is the author and creator of this world, who is the judge. And one day we will all stand before him and give account for sin righteousness and a judgment to come. All of us will do that. Whether you know the Lord Jesus Christ or not, you will appear before him. Whether you curse with his name or hate him or shake his fist or make fun of him, you will stand before him. And you know what's interesting? You will have nothing to say. I'll let him know. No, you will not be able to speak because of who he is and his glory. Every mouth shall be stopped. Okay, just in closing, as a Christian, am I thankful for everything that comes in my life? Well, I don't like everything that comes into my life, I must say that. I'm not always happy with everything that comes in my life. You, we won't turn there, but Romans 8, God says he works all things together for good. There's a plan. And what is it? For those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purposes, God has a plan. So some things come into my life that and I'm so God doesn't say everything is good because it's not necessarily good, but it works together for good. God has a plan to use this in our lives for his glory. Head with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18. This is a passage that is difficult, and you may bristle at it. I do at times. Because we as finite individuals, we as weak, emaciated people, we who can have no confidence in flesh, sometimes we allow the flesh to rise up and speak. You know what happens? It comes through these lips that um, are poor at best. First Thessalonians chapter 5, look at verse 18. In everything, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. See, no matter what it is, no matter how it comes, I am to keep my eyes on the prize of the hope of the calling of God. Don't let your eyes wander. When you look at the world, when you look at the situations that are going on around about us, are you thankful? God, I'm so thankful I'm a Christian. I don't have to get caught up with that stuff. 
And though one day, as Job, the worms eat this body, he's talking about the death and decay of the, of the ground, I shall see my God face to face. What a glorious, glorious thought. So I'm sorry to run you through leprosy. I'm sorry to bring you through this whole section, but it's God's word. And God, all that was written in earlier times was written for our learning. We need to learn from this, who God is and his purposes for us. And through seeing God and his purposes, we need to recognize one person was thankful. Only one out of ten. I wonder if there's one out of ten Christians that are thankful. So when something comes into your life, Stop speaking more to people and start speaking more to God. And be thankful. Let's pray. Father, your word is a sharp word. And Father, I recognize that I am not the person that I should be. And yet I'm not the person that I'm going to be. So I thank you, Father, for your work in me. I pray that I would continue to grow even in this older age. And that each one in this room would recognize that we need to be thankful. We're to give thanks for all that comes into our lives. There's so many New Testament passages on thankfulness. I pray, Lord, each person in this room would look them up and see your direction. That by everything, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let our requests be made known unto God. Father, thank you for who you are and for your purposes in us. We pray, Father, you'd bless as we travel our distances, as we go to fellowship together downstairs. We pray for our pastor that he might have an adequate ministry there at the base, that he might tell some of these young men and women who are traveling to harm's way, that he would tell them about the Savior, have that opportunity, and that, Father, they would come to Christ. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.